Welcome to Access Utah. I'm Tom Williams. Lynn Ingram is professor of Earth and Planetary Science and Geography at University of California, Berkeley, co-author of The West Without Water. And she joins us for the program today to answer such questions as what is normal climate of the West? How do we know it's normal? What have we learned from mega floods and mega droughts during the past 2,000 years, including the most disastrous flood in the history of California in the West? That was 1861-1862. Why is climate so variable in the West? And what does the past tell us about tomorrow? Ingram and her co-author, Francis Malamud-Rome, say that extended droughts and catastrophic floods have plagued the West with regularity over the past two millennia, but that while the West may have temporarily buffered itself from such harsh climatic swings by creating artificial environments and human landscapes, our modern civilization may be ill-prepared for future climate changes that are predicted to beset the region. They say we should prepare for a, water, a future in which fresh water may be less reliable. Lynn Ingram is coming to Logan to deliver a lecture called The West Without Water, A Climate History. That's part of USU Natural Resources Week, hosted by the SGA and Jesse E. Quinney College of Natural Resources. The lecture is free and open to the public. It's April 1st at noon in the Eccles Conference Center Auditorium on the USU campus. Lynn Ingram, a pleasure to welcome you to Access Utah. Oh, thank you. Thanks for inviting me. Appreciate you being with us on this uh, St. Patrick's Day. By the by, the way, to uh, to our radio audience, I am wearing green. Although if you if you were to see me, I totally forgot today, so I I may get I may get pinched. So we'll we'll hope my coworkers are kind here. Uh, I want to uh, to start with a uh, uh, I guess you could call this a, a sobering uh, paragraph from your book. It's page forty seven. You say the extreme climate events of the past century and a half have been presented in this chapter. You you've gone over those were indeed severe. However, paleoclimate evidence suggests that they were by no means the worst we can expect from nature. In fact, compared to what records indicate of the long-term climate patterns for this region, the climate of the North American West over the past 150 years has been nearly ideal for human settlement. Uh, so we, we have not been living in, quote-unquote, a normal period? Well, in normal in the sense that if we look over the past several thousand years, um, there have been drier spells or, you know, dry periods that have lasted decades or even centuries. And, and also the, the tree ring record tells us that the 20th century was on average wetter, maybe by 15%, than the average of the last um, thousand years. So we've only experienced, at least in California, two um, six-year droughts. And that's pretty mild compared to what, you know, what you see going further back in time. Well, let's start with the the more recent past. Then you you have a chapter on the on the floods of eighteen sixty one sixty two. I wonder if you take us into into that. This uh, we've had echoes of this, but, the, but this was, I guess, uh, one of the worst in recent history. Right. Yeah. So the um, so during that flood, there were uh, forty three days of rain between. Um, December and early February, and it was actually caused by an atmospheric river, a series of atmospheric river storms that, that just brought a lot of heavy rain, and so at least in California, we had the whole Central Valley, um, which is something like 350 miles long and uh, 50 miles wide, was under about 10 or 15 feet of water, uh, flooding our capital city of Sacramento. Um, and it's just probably a couple thousand deaths, we think. Um, 
you know, just l- large areas of not just California, but the largest uh, floods along the West Coast and inland, even as far as uh, Nevada and Utah, Arizona, um, had their wettest year that year. Uh, mm. the, the, it, just extraordinary. And parenthetically, earlier today I was talking with a friend about, uh, she was remembering the Willard floods here in Utah, 1923. Uh, just reading about that, it, it, some, some Boy Scouts washed away. Uh, one one man uh, stood out to me, he saved his family, then died of a heart attack. Uh, so there have been oh. this, these extreme, you know, weather events, um, uh, I guess alternating floods and, and, and droughts. Right, exactly. So that's what... That's really the the amazing thing to me is just the extreme um, variability we have, you know, between these two extremes over time. So not just these single-year events, but we also see longer periods, like uh, one to 200 years of where it's we're on average much wetter and then drier on average. And so, you know, it all ties in with the Pacific Ocean and conditions over the Pacific Ocean, which is our source of um, water, really. You, uh, you talk about the Dust Bowl uh, in the book. I wonder if you could spend a little bit uh, on, on that. Of course, famously, you know, it caused a great migration to, to California. Right. Um, so, in, well, in California, that was um, an extremely... Uh, dry period from 1928 to 1935. Um, and that was our biggest um, or longest drought of the 20th century. And, uh, and so that combined with, of course, the Dust Bowl was both a combination of drought, which actually covered, uh, at one point, three-quarters of the United States was in drought during the Dust Bowl period. And... Um, so, you know, that's another concern is that this isn't, our book, our book focused on California and the West, but some of these events can extend over large areas of the United States and usually are associated with um, El, uh, La Nina conditions over the Pacific. So, again, that sort of ties in with what's going on in the ocean, ocean circulation. I'd like to get into the, the paleoclimate. You, you go back a couple thousand years, right? Um... To, to kind of situate us in in, in the longer history of, uh, of of the climate, so I wonder if you could talk a bit about maybe first the the mega droughts that we find in in the history. Yeah, well, we have um, in the book we talk about um, there were several periods of mega drought. If you look over the entire Holocene, um, ten thousand years in length. The, the early part of the Holocene um, was very dry for a couple thousand years. So that was like eight to 10,000 years ago. And then the middle part of the Holocene, um, between about 6,000 and 4,700 years ago, was extremely dry. And then um, toward the end, that we have the medieval warm period, which was dry between about um, 900 and 1400 A.D., so that was the more recent um, dry period, and um, so a lot has been a lot of research has been done on this more recent, the medieval um, warm period, because we have the younger or the more recent events. We have more evidence in the, 
the um, paleoclimate record. So you can look at both tree rings, uh, lake levels, and uh, uh, we've they've looked at um, oh fire scars in the giant sequoia and uh, seen that it was maybe forty percent drier during the uh, during that medieval warm period, um, and that was throughout both California and throughout the West and the south the Southwest as well. Oh, and what about the, uh, the mega floods? There was this pattern in the past as well, the, the, that, uh, you know, paleoclimate, uh, I take it, uh, alternate uh, flooding and, and droughts. Right. So um, there were, there's, there were um, so, so events similar to the 1861-62 event um, occurred roughly every one to 200 years in the past. And um, I think originally people thought that, that that big flood event was kind of a freak event. You know, they didn't expect it will ever happen again. But if we look in the um, sediment cores taken off the coast of Southern California and in the, the floodplains um, in California in the Central Valley, you see these uh, very thick flood layers that, that recur or repeat themselves roughly every one to two hundred years, and so it does look like these are a regular um, part of our hydrology here in in California and probably throughout the West because the atmospheric river storms, you know, they don't just affect California. We see them going all the way from Washington State, you know, down to uh, Southern Cal and then inland as well. Um, and then we also just had when during past colder periods, um, it was in, on average wetter. So if you look over us, um, like for the little ice age from, uh, let's see, about 1400 AD to the, the early 1800s, it was wetter in the West. And then further back, there's the neoglacial. Um, about that was, ran from about um, 4,000 to 2,000 years ago. It was wetter, you know. So, and even the last ice age, it was wetter. So, what we see is a pattern of um, wetter times are associated with a uh, colder climate, and then the drier the drier periods um, are associated with warmer climate in the past. So I wonder, uh, this is one of those key questions, then we've uh, discussed then uh, reaching back to paleoclimate, these fluctuations both in moisture and, and temperature. Uh, what, what is normal climate of the West, and how do we know what's normal? Well, that's the, I mean, the problem is the, the normal just, it, it's extremely variable. So the... Um, there's an average, you have an average value that, um, that itself fluctuates in the past, but, uh, but huge variations around that, that average. So you rarely get, like the precipitation is rarely whatever the average is. It's usually either much higher or much lower. And so that's why we developed in the 20th century, you know, um, the whole, you know, started building dams and having to have water storage and so on because, um, you know, you really needed to 
to save water from the wetter years to to make it through the drier periods and you know that works okay that works okay if the drier periods are you know a, a year or a few years but um it's a problem if if you have an extended dry period like we've seen can happen in the past and is there I wonder if we get complacent or feel like we have more power than we really do over uh, over these climate cycles. We you know we build dams. We we've we've been very successful in a way in in controlling water and controlling uh, other factors of of climate. Yeah, I mean we um, I think we definitely have. Because we had, a, on average, a wetter century in the 20th century, and we, we didn't have really, really long, you know, anything longer than about six-year drought, um, I think we have, you know, our population has continued to grow. We've, we've built this huge agricultural industry that's dependent on, um, you know, a certain amount of water. And, and, but at the same time, we're also... Um, you know, we've we've been facing water shortages, and even starting in the Dust Bowl drought, we started pumping groundwater. So, you know, we, we're kind of using up all the water in the bank also. I mean, so it's like somehow we haven't faced the fact that if we, you know, if this drought continues, we're really going to use up all of our surface water and have, you know, start really deplete, seriously depleting our groundwater sources as well. well. One thing I want to bring in right here, we'll, we'll discuss it more fully as we go along, mm. is, is stresses on dams that we've built. The dams are aging, and as we get more precipitation as rain, greater stresses on, on the dams. You, you told the pulse-pounding story here in brief of uh, when uh, people at the Glen Canyon Dam thought, thought it was going to fail. I can't remember when that, in the 1980s maybe? Um, let's see, that was, uh, trying to remember if that was the 82, 83 El Nino or the, uh, 1993, but, but it wasn't, it was an El Nino year, which was very wet. And so that dam just was filled to the, the brim and, um, right. They were starting to see evidence that it was starting to erode, um, the, the foundation of that dam, and um, and there had you know in the earliest twentieth or mid twentieth century, a couple of dams did did go. I think one in Southern California and or a couple they were both in Southern California. So um, I think that's another problem. And I'm not an engineer, so I don't mm-hmm. <clears throat> you know all I know is that you know and I've read that these dams are obviously aging and and um, if we have more precipitation falling as as rain, you know, in the winter, then we're, they're going to be more stressed, put on those dams. And they're also filling with sediment. So that's the other problem is these dams have kind of a finite lifetime because the, the water that flows into them is carrying suspended sediment that settles out in the reservoir and gradually literally fills that dam so its capacity its its um volume decreases over time in terms of the the available volume for water 
And, uh, you know, eventually these dams are going to, you know, they're not really designed to last forever for that reason. Yeah, I think we don't think about, the, you know, we just enjoy the water and the power. For example, in this possible dam failure in the early 80s, uh, the Glen Canyon Dam, there apparently would have been a 800-foot uh, wall of water, would have destroyed um, the Hoover Dam and, and Lake Mead. And and that illustrates uh, our precariousness, I think, right? Because Las Vegas, Phoenix, Los Angeles all depend on, on the water and, and power from Lake Mead. Right, that's right. So... Um it just, yeah, it definitely shows how, um, I don't know, susceptible our system is, how fragile it is, and, um, you know, that we, sh- we should not take it for granted. And, yeah, it, it's a little unsettling if you <laughs> it, 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 <laughs> let yourself think about it too much. Yeah. I mean, it's, um, yeah. And so I think we disconnect. Uh, and maybe that's, a, you know... One of the things your book is, uh, I mean, you're you're presenting science uh, here, the climate science, but uh, maybe it helps us think about this a little bit. Uh, we're going to break, and when we come back, uh, I want to address a, a few of these other important questions. Uh, why is climate so variable in the West? And, of course, the critical question, what does the past tell us about tomorrow? We, we, uh, can we trust the models, and what are those models telling us in terms of uh, predictions? And uh, this quote from uh, Sandra Postel or Postal, I'm not sure how you pronounce her name, Director of Global Water Policy Project, writes the foreword to the book. She says, We have so successfully masked the aridity that we've become imbued with a false sense of security about our water future. So we'll talk about our water future as well following the break. It seems Tchaikovsky never approved the published version of his famous piano concerto number one. So who did? Signs point to a student of Tchaikovsky. Pianist Kirill Gerstein has the story of what he says is the version Tchaikovsky wanted us to hear on the next performance today from APM. Tuesday morning at 11 on Utah Public Radio. Waste not. Install a rain sensor on your irrigation controller so your system won't run when it's raining. Also, install water-wise fixtures and appliances. Waste Not is made possible by the Logan City Public Works Water Conservation Department. Information at loganutah.org slash publicworks. Thanks for listening to Access Utah. We're talking today with the co-author of uh, the book, The West Without Water, What Past Floods, Droughts, and Other Climatic Clues Tell Us About Tomorrow. We're talking with Lynn Ingram, who is Professor of Earth and Planetary Science and Geography at University of California, Berkeley. Uh, She's coming to Logan on April 1st for a lecture, The West Without Water, Climate History. That's a part of the USU Natural Resources Week, hosted by the S.J. and Jesse E. Quinney College of Natural Resources. The lecture is free and open to the public. It's April 1st at noon in the Eccles Conference Center Auditorium. And uh, Lynn Ingram and her co-author, Francis Malamud-Rome, looked at paleoclimate back 2,000 years and uh, forward to the more recent uh, past. They look toward the future as well, and uh, they tell us that uh, we're now learning that the floods and droughts of uh, 
the uh, past 150 years are an incomplete sampling of the extreme events that have been quote-unquote normal part of the West hydrology for thousands of years. And the clues from the past climates depict extremely dry periods, often punctuated by torrential rains and floods. And we now realize that vastly larger floods, more severe and protracted droughts, though rare, are as inevitable as the earthquakes and volcanic eruptions that Pacific Coast residents know will occur. Quite, uh, quite sobering. Uh, the number to call us here, we'd uh, love for you to join the program with your question or comment, is 1-800-826-1495, 1-800-826-1495. You can join us at upraxcess at gmail.com. That's our email, upraxcess at gmail.com. And we're on Twitter, at Utah Public Radio. Uh, so, uh, Lynn Ingram, uh, next question up. I'm curious about this. This is the uh, title of one of your chapters, uh, Why? Is the climate so variable in the West? Um, it's, well, largely because we, um, our precipitation, um, contr- or what controls our precipitation is conditions over the Pacific Ocean. And, and that varies, you know, in terms of uh, there's various cycles going on in the Pacific Ocean that, that affect uh, atmospheric circulation and how much pre- um, Evaporated, evaporated water is going to reach the West Coast. So there's um, all the there's like the Pacific Decadal Oscillation that has cycles from 30 to 70 years of, um, and it has to do with uh, sea surface temperatures and pressures in the Northern Pacific. And then there's um, the El Nino Southern Oscillation. That, that affects uh, tropical um, ocean circulation and temperatures. Uh, and then there's over longer periods of time, um, this is a little more speculative, but if we look at evidence of sunspot cycles in the past, it looks like um, we're, our climate, we have cycles that are tied in with these sunspot cycles, that uh, we have a 90-year, a 200-year, and a 1,500-year cycle. So what I was talking about that long term, you know, over the, the entire Holocene, the last uh, 10,000 years, there's, there's some, we see a, evidence for these different cycles, you know, so periods where it was cooler and wetter, alternating with warmer and drier, that lasted, you know, roughly 1,500 year and then, then 200 year. So it, it's kind of interesting that we, um, you know, it seems all these things seem to somehow uh, impact um, the hydrologic cycle and atmospheric circulation enough, you know, to impact how much precipitation we ultimately get here. I wonder, uh, we get into a, a key question that's, uh, this often gets political, um, is how do we know that this is, you know, at least lately, human-caused? Gets into that. You you treat that in the book. Uh, what if you tell us the story of the lilacs? This, this was <laughs> this was charming to me. Uh, 1957, Montana state climatologist Joe Caprio distributed lilac plants to people across the West, requesting they send him annual postcard reports with the dates of when the flowers sprouted and bloomed. So there, here was here is he. He's gathering data with the help of I guess right. you know regular citizens. Yeah, and and what he. Um what he found was that the lilacs were uh, all across the West were blooming a couple weeks um, earlier, and so in other words, spring was was coming earlier, 
And um, that was also reflected in the, um, the stream flow records. Ultimately, uh, snow melt um, was starting to occur earlier as well. And so that was kind of one of the first clues that, um, you know, that warming, you know, we've got some warming going on that is causing everything to kind of uh, start warming up uh, sooner, so spring coming earlier. So uh, then, how do we how do we know there, you've described uh, you know great variability and uh, rhythms, of course, um, in in climate. Uh, how do we know that uh, the, the humans are affecting these cycles and the, and the climate? Well, um, what we so looking at our current situation, um, we. You know, you're right. We because we have such extreme variability in terms of our precipitation here in the West. This, you know, this could actually be um, just part of a natural. You know, in terms of our drought going on now, there's no way that we can actually really say for sure this is caused by warming. Um, although we do know for sure that that the the climate is warming, we can just see that from from the various records that it's warming and it's warming in a kind of uniform, uh, there's a uniform trend that um, is associated with increasing greenhouse gases. So I guess what, what we don't know for sure in the future is um, how exactly how it's going to affect our hydrology. I mean, there's various... Um, models that people have run showing, you know, it will probably get drier um, because you have more evaporation. But some models show, you know, maybe you'd have more rain in the winter. Um, Some models are showing less rain. Um, For sure, all the models are showing that we'll have less snow, which is a problem because uh, we really rely on um, the snowpack for the dry season, you know, the snow melt that occurs in the dry season. So that, that's going to be a big problem right there. And um, we do expect there to be more extreme um, conditions. So, uh, in, you know, more longer droughts and more extreme floods. Um, as you kind of speed up, you add energy to the system, you're going to have, you know, just more... Uh, more water going through the system, more evaporation causing it to be drier, but when it's wetter, it could be even more wet because these atmospheric, atmospheric river storms originate in the tropics. They come across the Pacific, and those actually might get larger in the future, which is a double-edged sword because they cause flooding, but they also bring, um, at least they bring rain to the, the uh, western U.S. I wonder if you could... Uh maybe expand a bit on those, you know, the droughts and the, and the floods. What are the models telling us? How, how extreme could it get? Well, um, oh, I don't know if I have the actual numbers. I, I believe the, um, well, there's been a recent, actually there was a recent modeling study just published in Science that, that showed by the end of the 20th or the um, 21st century, so between 2050 and um, 2099, 
they're uh, expecting something similar to the medieval drought. Um, and they ran a whole a, a number of different models that showed this. And um, so that would be maybe um, 40% drier um, in the future and, and last for at least a few decades. So they're calling it a mega drought that we can, you know, that they're strongly predicting, you know, starting in the mid- middle of this century. Um, so that, and they were kind of using the, this was one of the first studies that, that, they, that used the, pa- the paleoclimate record as part of their model. Um, so it, you know, it, it was, um, I think, a more robust model than some of them that have been run. And that'll get your attention. Didn't mind forty percent less water, right? And and, and right. You know, decades long drought, mm-hmm. uh, which would and put they it... were and so that would and they were looking over you know a large part of the um, the Midwest and I think the Southwest is where they were modeling that. Hmm. So that... it. <clears throat> It, and and that was assuming a certain you know they of course they were assuming a certain um, greenhouse gas levels so uh, a lot of this depends on you know how much we continue to add um, greenhouse gases to the atmosphere um, and and what happens in terms of of warming in the future. Hmm. Well, another question occurs to me. Um, you know, we're depending on models. You know, we don't know 100% sure, but the models is what we have. And I assume these models are, are tested. They, you have some confidence in this due to accurate predictions, you know, in, in, the, in the near, I got the recent past. Right. Uh, so we can have some confidence in, in these models. It's, it's, yeah, yeah. I think they, they ground truth them, you know, just, but they, they can only look over the, the instrumental records, so they, they can only use, say, the last hundred years mm-hmm. to sort of calibrate their models. And so that's why this other study was a little different, because they actually went and used the medieval warm period. You know, they, they went further back in time to use a more extreme event that, it, that nobody else has been looking at. Now, what um, about, uh, uh, sorry, what, what about uh, floods? So if we, we look that in the, in the paleoclimate, we see extended drought. We also see mega floods. And if, if we had another flood, like 1861-62, that, that would be catastrophic, wouldn't it, to Central Valley and other areas of California? Uh, yeah, I mean, it, unfortunately now we're even more um, vulnerable to to floods because we've been building and developing cities in some of the places that were under 10 to 15 feet of water. So, for instance, in California, this vast central valley is now home to like 13 million people and our huge agricultural industry. And so, and, and on top of that, um, because we've been pumping groundwater so much, the, the, the surface of the, the ground surface is literally dropped um, at least, you know, or up to like 30 feet in many places. Um, because as you pump groundwater, you, you, um, that those pore spaces that, that held the water are left open and you ha- liter- have subsidence and compaction 
of, of the soil. And, and that means that that Central Valley, which is like a big bathtub, is, has just gotten, you know, it's now deeper, like 30 feet deeper. And it's now, you know, growing cities in that. You know, there's like Merced, Modesto, Fresno, Sacramento, you know, all of these cities that are expanding. That's the area actually of expansion in California because our coastal regions are already so so crowded that now the expansion is occurring inland. So, and I think in other states as well, there's, there's probably people living in the places um, that are in the floodplains. So it, it's, a, it's a really big concern. And then also with warmer conditions, these atmospheric river storms are predicted to get larger because you have even more evaporation at the, um, in the tropics so it's fueling larger, larger store. The atmospheric rivers are these long corridors of vapor, water vapor that come from the tropics and uh, bring that, that vapor up to, to the west coast where it then drops a huge amount of rain. So, you know, that process is going to be fueled by, you know, with the warmer climate. And I, I believe that the models predict the, the storm tracks maybe may move northward right so the so that's the the um the winter storms that we rely on um are there was there's been modeling showing that those storms are hitting more further north um so there or places like oregon washington and further north might get wetter in the future whereas um the, the, the southwest and you know the southern states are going to get drier because we we aren't going to get that moisture that we normally get from those winter storms. Um, but the but the atmospheric river storms um, at the at the same time though we might get sporadically larger atmospheric river storms uh, that bring with it the flooding. So I guess the the it um, it's a matter of well, can we? How do we harness that water in terms of, you know, because we'll be getting a lot of water at once, and it's uh, we won't necessarily be able to use all that water because it's it's during an atmospheric river event, it's it's just too much water at once. You know, we rather have it more evenly distributed throughout the winter, and and with rainfall and atmospheric river storms are are warmer as well because they come from the tropics. So you, they tend to not cause uh, snow as much as uh, rain in the mountains. And we're, we're definitely seeing that, uh, you know, just one data point, we're seeing that this year for, for sure in Utah. Uh, snow, yeah, snowpack's yeah not same great. in California here where our, our snowpack is, is like 18% of normal. And... Uh, you know, we're just not getting... We've actually had a couple um, atmospheric river storms that, that brought some rain for the reservoirs, but um, no, really not much snow. And uh, I think we could call this a drought now in, in California, right? Over the, you know, over a while now. Very dry conditions. Yeah, I mean, in, in California, this is our... We're in the fourth year of a really bad drought um, that's uh, according to the U.S. Drought Monitor, um, 
uh, exceptional, extreme to exceptional. I think 70% of the state is now extreme to exceptional. So if you look at a map of, of the Western United States, um, the, the, uh, have you seen these maps with the different colors? Mm-hmm. So that the darker reds yeah. are showing the more extreme drought conditions. And then the colors get lighter with more um, moderate to severe drought. California and Nevada are really, you know, the bullseye of the exceptional to extreme drought. And then moving, moving eastward, um, Arizona, Utah are more um, abnormally dry to uh, moderate drought. So it's not quite as severe where you are. But but in California, it's really bad. Yeah, and it, it's always a concern in Utah, second driest state in the in the union. Nevada, of course, number one in in that uh, the, with that dubious honor. Right, right. Let's take another break. When we come back, I want to talk about uh, maybe recommendations. What what should we be doing? And uh, I'll quote this from the book Jonathan Overpeck and Brad, Brad, Bradley Udall. University of Arizona advised scientists and policymakers who are currently discussing strategies for adapting to climate change that they need to include the possibility that the West could enter into another mega-drought, like the ones discussed earlier in the book. Their no-regrets approach includes adapting to overall reductions in water, etc. I want to look at that no-regrets approach and uh, the possibility that we we could be, in the future, we could be looking at 40% less fresh water. More following the break. Utah's famous work of land art, the Spiral Jetty, was completed in 1970. A few short years later, the artwork was inundated with the rising waters of the Great Salt Lake and stayed mostly submerged for 30 years. This year, the historically low level of the lake is providing a great opportunity to see the Spiral Jetty. This is Jennifer Pemberton. I went to the Spiral Jetty for the first time this year, but I want to know what your visit was like. I'm collecting your Spiral Jetty stories for the March 27th episode of The Source. Go to upr.org to submit your story or come talk to me in person. I'll be at the Spiral Jetty Story Booth after the next Science Unwrapped presentation. That's Friday, March 20th at Utah State University. Details about that event are also at upr.org. Thanks for sharing your story. Did you know that if a child really wants to read something you know is beyond his or her ability, solve it by reading it aloud together. You can take turns reading and define unfamiliar words as you go. That way, the child will avoid frustration and enjoy the added bonus of your company. Did You Know That is made possible by the USU Emma Eccles Jones College of Education and Human Services. More at cehs.usu.edu. Thanks for listening to Access Utah. We're talking with Lynn Ingram, Professor of Earth and Planetary Science and Geography at the University of California, Berkeley, co-author of the book, The West Without Water, What Past Floods, Droughts, and Other Climatic Clues Tell Us About Tomorrow. And she's our guest for another 10 minutes on the program. You can join us at 1-800-826-1495 or upraxcess at gmail.com. And we're on Twitter at Utah Public Radio. 
Lynn Ingram is coming to Logan. She's delivering a lecture called The West Without Water, A Climate History as a part of the USU Natural Resources Week, hosted by the S.J. and Jesse Quinney College of Natural Resources. The lecture is free and open to the public. It's April 1st at noon in Eccles Conference Center Auditorium on the USU campus. So, Linda Ingram, I'd like to point toward, and this is your this is your last chapter here, um, the, the the lessons and 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 uh, recommendations. What uh, should we be doing? And before the break, I quoted Jonathan Overpack and Bradley Udall, University of Arizona. They uh, they formulated a no regret no regrets approach. They said we should. Um, prepare for possibility of another mega drought like the ones that we've been discussing. Uh, so I wonder if you talk a little bit about this, this no regrets uh, approach. Um, what, what are some of the recommendations? Well, I, I think the, um, the main idea is that we need to, to start preparing for um, potentially, you know, drier conditions. And so, um, if we if we learn if we look for example to uh, the Australians and what they did with their they had a decade long drought the worst in their history where they they had roughly thirty to forty percent decreased precipitation um, they were able to actually decrease their water usage in you know in all sectors agricultural and um, uh, other sectors by a number of different things. So um, they started more heavy recycling of irrigation water, um, treating wastewater, so re- recycling gray water um, and treating it so that it could be used again for dr- even for drinking water. Um, uh, having more drought-tolerant landscaping, so removing lawns, um, that sort of thing, and just having... Uh, native plants or whatever in your yards. Um, And uh, they built desalination plants in every major coastal city. Um, Of course, in Australia, most of their big cities are on the coast. But, um, you know, and and water-efficient appliances uh, in terms of washing machines, toilets, shower heads, and that sort of thing. So, um, you know, there's a lot that we could do, and even just... uh, looking more at our water footprint, which is the embedded water um, that's in a product or a food, you know, the total amount of water that goes into that product or food. So there's certain things like um, beef, for example, that, that uh, use a huge amount of water to, by the time you start with the cow and then you end up with, you know, one steak is hundreds of gallons of uh, of water, and so you know, if you if you if people can start evaluating how much water they're actually using, not even just directly, but indirectly with all the the products and foods that we consume, um, you know, there's a lot. I think a lot of savings and potential areas that we can really um, start looking at now and start trying to to really decrease our water footprint. Oftentimes, these reactions, they can be quite effective, as you cited the Australian uh, example, are, I think, reactions to, to what has happened. Uh, near the end of your book, you uh, quote the National Research Council, uh, a report saying that uh, they're recommending that we incorporate water scarcity into our regular water planning and management. 
Right, exactly. So um, I think it's, uh, I, I think there's an assumption that, you know, the average precipitation of the last 150 years is going to continue. And I, I think we have to kind of face the fact that that's probably not the case and, you know, really start, um, yeah, as, you know, just really incorporating that into our future planning um, and then not, you know, and, and not building, how, for example, housing developments in areas that don't have enough water to support them. So that's the other end of it is really um, in terms of where we're developing to incorporate both um, the, the available water resources but and also on the other end of the spectrum, you know, not continuing to be building in floodplains, you know, not putting, you know, having uh, housing, you know, even in California in the last 10 years, we've been, you know, continuing to develop in, in the Central Valley, um, which is, so, I mean, both ends of this, it just feels to me like we're not looking looking to the, you know, incorporating those kinds of things into our planning for some reason. There's something, and uh, one of the other, I guess, potential problems, if, if you do see this overall as a problem, is uh, people have short memories. And you, you quote in the book, I hadn't realized this, there's something called flood memory half-life, which uh, I guess flood insurance companies notice. Uh, for instance, uh, rates for flood coverage increased immediately after the 1997 floods, but have been declining since then. That's that's one example, and I guess that you could probably have a you know a drought memory half life as well. Right, right, and flood in terms of or um, just any kind of I, I think any kind of natural disaster seems to have like a um, you know we tend to. St- forget about it, and um, there's a tendency also for denial, I think. So there was another example that I read from Jared Diamond who said um, people who live right below dams would, you know, somehow, um, in order to live there, you almost have to not allow yourself to to even consider the possibility that the dam could could go, you know. So it's um, sometimes I think instead of really um, facing what's what potentially could happen and preparing for it and and making necessary changes, we kind of are either in denial or you know we just kind of want to forget about it. I, mean, I don't know if the forgetting is is sort of a denial process, mm. but. Um, we just have about a, a minute left. I wonder, overall, you've you know you you have with your co-author researched the whole uh, back two thousand years, the 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 trends at least in the paleoclimate, brought that forward, and uh, also given us uh, what the models are are predicting. What what do you hope people come away from from this book, from this research with? Um, I guess it just the you know the huge amount of of variability, you know, the fact that there, are just this is the way our climate is. We're, we have, we it's, we have the potential to have long droughts. We also have the potential to have really large floods. And just to kind of prepare for that, just like we um, prepare at least in California, you know, along the West Coast for earthquakes, 
you know, we we have some kind of, or if you live near a volcano, you might have some kind of um, planning and uh, disaster preparation. You know, it's uh, it can't hurt to prepare for a big, you know, say a a, a large a long flood event um, because there is the potential for that for it to recur. Um, and especially with water, I mean, it's actually something that I think we have to start doing now and having it be part of our our regular life. Um, you know, just we we can't just put it off for the future. I mean, I think it's something that we actually have to start doing now so that we're truly um, prepared if something's, you know, if we should continue with these dry years. Lynn Ingram has been our guest. She is professor of Earth and Planetary Science and Geography at the University of California, Berkeley, co-author of the book The West Without Water. She's coming to Logan to deliver a lecture called The West Without Water, a climate history as a part of the USU Natural Resources Week, hosted by the S.J. and Jesse E. Quinney College of Natural Resources. The lecture is free and open to the public. It's April 1st at noon in Eccles Conference Center Auditorium on the USU campus. And uh, Professor Ingram, it's been a pleasure. Thank you so much. Oh, thank you. And we hope you'll join us tomorrow for Access Utah. And for today, for my producers, I'm Tom Williams. Thanks so much for listening. Coming up on the next Bluegrass Breakdown, it's a flexible strand of metal used to bear loads, convey electricity, create sounds, catch fish, keep things together, and so much more. I'm Dave Higgs, and we'll be looking at barbed wire, chicken wire, hog wire, hot wire, live wire, and hay wire on the next Bluegrass Breakdown. Commentator Emily Bergen. This is the time of year when I want to throttle Ben Franklin, or at least shake him by the shoulders till his wispy hair flutters and his little bifocals topple from his nose. When he suggested daylight savings, what was he thinking? All right, I know he was thinking a lot. I read his autobiography, well, most of it. But can't I just appreciate him for the Postal Service and his founding fatherism? Must his legacy force 310 million people out of bed in the spring and then plunge them into darkness in the fall? Last year I tried explaining to my first grader all about him, how influential he'd been and how it was his idea to switch the clocks back so we could have more daylight in the summer times. And that's why she suddenly had to wake up an hour earlier every day. Spring forward, I said. Her look said it all. What a dumb idea. Of course, I've felt that way for years, ever since I was the child being dragged out of bed. But I've gone along with it. You kind of have to, don't you, since all the school principals do and the bosses and the federal government. But now that I'm a mother, it really hits home. After the time change, it takes about two weeks before my kids stop walking around in the morning like the undead. And though switching back to standard time is easy on the alarm clock, it's murder on the children. Suddenly their mealtimes and bedtimes are pushed back a full hour, which results in near-constant whining. That's why I use a system in the fall that I call old time, new time. When my kids are complaining at 5 p.m., I tell my husband, though it's 5 o'clock new time, it's really 6 o'clock old time. They're just hungry, so we feed them and the whining stops. A couple hours later, when they're rowdy, I say, though it's 7 o'clock new time, it's really 8 o'clock old time. They're just tired, so we put them to bed. I use this system for about a week until the kids have adjusted or until I've gotten confused trying to keep track of the old and new times. 
My husband doesn't like it, and every time I intone it, he says, no, it's really 7 o'clock. My point, though, is that kids are not as flexible as adults. We've scheduled them to eat and sleep at certain hours, and if anyone switches that up, even Ben Franklin, there will be hell to pay. And who pays for it? The parents. Switching back to standard time in the fall is a beast anyway. It happens right when the earth is turning a seasonal corner and the northern hemisphere is quickly retreating into winter and darkness. In that crucial time between the equinox and the solstice, we're losing minutes of sunshine on both ends of the day. But then to pull away a whole hour at once so that the sun has set before the workday is over? It feels like walking off a moving sidewalk into a brick wall. I'd bet the onset of seasonal affective disorder for many has more to do with falling back than it does just the shortening of days. Now time for my confession. Since I started writing this essay, I've learned through a few clicks of the mouse that Ben Franklin didn't actually propose daylight savings, so I'll hold off the throttling. He merely wrote a funny letter to a Parisian newspaper about rising early to save candles at night. This American myth is probably one of the reasons daylight savings has survived in the U.S. for nearly 100 years. I'm guessing that the original proponents associated his name with it to ensure its success. But there's good news. Daylight savings was first proposed by a New Zealander. So if we were to leave this practice behind, we wouldn't be alienating Ben Franklin after all. Isn't it obvious these time changes have outlived their usefulness? We're all thinking it. Heck, we're even all saying it. I have the same conversations about it every spring and fall. So please, in the words of the old gospel song, I beg our federal government to let daylight savings go. This is Emily Bergen. Let my people go! Access Utah is a production of Utah Public Radio. You can listen to this episode or previous episodes of Access Utah anytime at upr.org, where you can find a link to subscribe to our podcast. This is Utah Public Radio, KUSR HD1 Logan, KUSK HD1 Vernal, KUSL HD1 Richfield, KUSTHD1 Moab, KCEU Price, and KUSR.